Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Sped, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we got a lot of news to get to, including the hiring of Matt Borg Salty and Ryan Fuller as the new hit co-hitting coaches at the major league level for the Orioles. We'll also talk about Cedric Mullins winning the Silver Slugger Award, Ryan Malcastle not being named a finalist for American League Rookie of the Year Award, the latest news about Heston Kerstad, and more. We'll be on tonight's episode, but first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we'll start off with really the big news of the week and one of the, what I suspect will be one of the bigger stories of the offseason for the Orioles, which is the announced hiring of Matt Borg Salty and Ryan Fuller as the co-hitting coaches at the major league level for the Orioles. Fuller was the hitting coach at Double A Bowie last year and also served as the full season minor league hitting coordinator. Borg Salty, meanwhile, is joining the Orioles from the Twins organization, where he had spent the last several years as a minor league hitting coach. Most recently, it was the Triple A St. Paul Saints. Um, this move really does represent kind of a step further in that analytical direction that the Orioles as an organization have been moving in. Fuller and Borg Salty are younger guys. Neither has played in the major leagues. In fact, Borg Salty did not have professional playing experience. Uh, but both guys are heavy into analytics, and that's something the Orioles have really been emphasizing at the minor league level. So they will take over the hitting coach role next year for Don Long, who parted ways with the Orioles after the 2021 season. I'll start with Nick on this. Um, what's kind of your thoughts on – this hiring, especially with Fuller moving up and what it means for the Orioles. I think it's an awesome move. I know Bob called it. it we got that vibe uh, from this whole thing. When we talked about him, when we talked to him, not about him, when we talked to him down in Bowie, I mean, I, I could sit there and just listen to him for hours and hours. I just want to listen to this guy talk about hitting. And we only talked to him for about 15 minutes or so, but you can tell how invested he was in this organization. We saw all the success that these Bowie hitters had, uh, and the guys like uh, Jordan Westberg did have a little bit of a learning curve, but Kyle Stowers and a lot of other hitters just didn't miss a beat when they went from high A to double A. Uh, and I think that's going to be the case in the major leagues as well, because, you know, something that Ryan Fuller talked about was that how still in touch he was with everybody in this organization, you know, at all levels, he's every day texting guys, calling guys. Uh, he's helping not just the guys at Bowie, but he was helping the hitters at all levels. So he's familiar with everyone in this organization. Hopefully we see a lot more of these younger prospects reach the major leagues this year, guys that have already worked with Fuller. 
Uh, so I think it's going to be a good move. Both guys are younger. I think they're both about 30, 31 years old. So yeah, both younger than me. So just another example, just another shot at how old I'm getting, which is great to see. Um, but yes, I think this is a really good move. And I think Orioles fans are going to see dividends pay off pretty, pretty early next season. Yeah, I guess they needed two guys combined to add up to Don Long's age from last year. So no, I think this means that all the coaches are going to be lining up to talk to us live in person next year because we bring good good things come after you talk to us. Uh, Ryan Fuller, great. You could, like Nick said, you talk to him for 15, 20 minutes, and you can just tell this guy it just has a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to hitting and teaching hitting. And I think it means that the Orioles consider what he's doing a success, and I think that means that they think they can uh, bring that up to the major league level and still have it translate across the, all levels. Great stuff. Well, I think that's really going to be the key is having it translate across all levels because we can see hitters, you know, put this work in at the higher levels of the minor leagues, get to the majors and maybe be taught something a little bit different. All of a sudden, what they learn in the minors goes out the window a little bit. And this philosophy that you're working on with them as they develop isn't really being carried out in major leagues. So I think that the Fuller's knowledge of the organization, the way that he was able to stay on top of how players outside of Bowie were developing last year. That was a good point that Nick brought up. I think it's really going to be crucial to this role. And I think for for Salty, you know, I've been trying to learn more about him just in the last few hours since this news came out, but it seems like he's the kind of guy that fits into this mold as well. Yeah, I think I saw that um, AAA for the Twins, they were an upper third of all the offensive categories, kind of just like Fuller was with AA Bowie. So uh, I'm sure, you know, they talked to him and, and he's on the same page. And I like that it's just going to be consistency for these guys from the bottom to the top, you know, don't have to switch what they're learning at every stop. Yeah, I think, I mean, he worked with Adley Rutschman all year and you're not going to convince me that Adley Rutschman is not the starting catcher on the opening day roster. I don't care about the CBA stuff. He's going to be the opening day catcher. Uh, at least he better be for fans sake. I know fans are going to lose it if he's not the opening day catcher, but I mean, you bring a hitting coach like Ryan Fuller up, you bring someone like Adley Rutschman behind the plate to work the pitchers up. Uh, and hopefully he's working with Michael Bowens and Kyle Bradishes and guys he's familiar with. I think you're starting to see the pieces come like be put into place here where we're not talking about a contending team, but I know our colleagues over at the warehouse and uh, uh, Chris Stoner and Matt Corey and Stephen Loftus, I know they all mention a lot about, you know, next year you're looking at hopefully around 70 wins with its Orioles team. I, I could definitely see that. And you're starting to see a lot of the pieces move into the right direction for that to happen. Of course, we still have free agency to go and, a 40 man roster at what, like 20 something guys. But um, I mean, the back end stuff I think is working there. So a, a great hire. And yeah, we'll learn more about this other guy too at the same time. But young guys, analytically driven, it's all working out. Yeah, I think it means they're putting in the guys, not just the stopgap. I mean, I think now we're getting to the point where they're putting in the guys that they want to see in these positions for a long term, for the long time. Well, and if you look in the next few years, are going to be critical because you've got not just Rutzman probably coming up hopefully on opening day next year, but then you're probably going to have Kyle Stowers not too far behind him. Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson, we know, are pushing for the major leagues. I think it's possible that we see Westberg sometime in the second half next year. Taron Vavra is another one. We know Ryan Fuller is very high on that I think we could expect to see in the majors next year. So there's a lot of players that could benefit from this. And the other thing that I think is good about the timing is that the players who are on the roster now, uh, who have been in the major leagues for a few years probably aren't too settled in yet to feel like they're being sold something completely new. 
And hopefully some of them are analytically inclined as is and can adapt because, you know, and we're going to talk about Cedric Mullins in a little bit there. That's one big success story we saw under Don Long. So now it's going to be, you know, can Ryan Fuller and Matt Borg-Salty get a little bit more out of Austin Hayes? Can they get a little bit more out of Ryan Mountcastle? So it's going to be interesting to see how they work with those guys too. Yeah, I was going to bring that point up later on when we talk about Cedric Mullins as well. I'd want to know, I don't know off the top of my head, how many of those instructors like Ryan Fuller were at the alternate site in 2020? I'm not sure. Off the top, I don't remember. Uh, but that would be interesting to know, like, what was that process like to get Cedric Mullins to where he is now or what we saw this version of Cedric Mullins? That, I'm interested to know that. Who who deserves a lot of that credit there? Uh, but, yeah, this is kind of you – know, you talk about just that uh, that camaraderie there. And you have someone like Adley Rutschman as well. Can He can vouch for – you know, if you have someone like Austin Hayes who maybe didn't get to work with him as well or – we don't know how much those major league hitters were working with a guy like Fuller, uh, but if it's not that much, and if they may be just a little bit hesitant or or worried about who is this guy, what does he bring in to us? Uh, you have a guy like Adley Rutschman who can come up and say, "I vouch for this guy. This is what he did for me," and I think that's going to go a long way. And a lot of the other players on the major league roster uh, taking taking a seat and listening to him. Yeah, and even if they're hesitant to start, I think all it's going to take is like one or two conversations with them, and I think they'll get on board. And at the very least, I don't think he's going to screw anybody up or, you know, make a regression for Cedric Mullins. I mean, I think what he, he does is going to be good. It should improve a bunch of these guys, if anything. Yeah, I agree. So we'll move on now to a listener question. This is from Ben in our Patreon group. Um, how will proposed changes to the collective bargaining agreement, like a salary floor and limiting service time manipulation, impact the Orioles? And I'll let Bob start with this one. Well, Nick will be right in his prediction that Adley Rutschman will be the opening day starting catcher. Um, and I think maybe you could see Grayson Rodriguez in the starting rotation if that is the case. Um, but, yeah, I think it would be very good for the game of baseball in general and especially the Orioles with all of our young guys and prospects coming up. I think it just means there's no reason to delay them. You can let them come up a little bit sooner than you would normally. Let them take their lumps, but they're still developing just at the major league level and and I think it maybe gets them up to speed even faster. So hopefully that is what happens in the next month or so. Yeah, it, it would be great for the game of baseball, but I'm just concerned. I said this before. I think when you see things like the, the housing announcement and anything else that comes along, I'm wondering if that's Major League Baseball kind of softening the blow here. We don't know. You've heard tidbits of like it's getting ugly behind the scenes. Uh, and we're probably not talking about missing baseball next year or a delay in the baseball season, but this winter is not going to be pretty. Um, and so each side seems to have dug in pretty tightly. Uh, but yeah, I think that would be great because I would much rather see Grayson Rodriguez is the type of pitcher that I think he's going to learn a lot more by just going ahead and learning at the major league level than in AAA, to be totally honest. Um, but yeah, as far as like a salary floor and ceiling, like if that's implemented, I don't really think that I don't see that happening, but like a salary floor, yeah, it forced the Orioles to spend more money, but I think instead of like giving Andrelton Simmons $3 million next year, like that could mean like they're going to give Andrelton Simmons like $10 million next year. I don't think it changes what type of free agent they go after if that were to to change things immediately. Yeah, I forgot to answer that part of the question. And Sim Contribute says, wouldn't Floor force the Orioles yeah. to sign mediocre players for, money, for more yeah. money? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, probably would, so. which is good for the players, but... um. Or maybe more likely we'd be like, hey, we'll take off this $20 million player off your hands if you throw in this prospect and maybe see some more of that kind of stuff. But I don't think it would really change Elias's game plan. I think it would just 
he would just cost him more to do it. Yeah, I don't think it would change things significantly either. The salary floor is really one of the more complicated parts of this whole discussion right now because on one hand, it seems like it's a thing that players are asking for because it's going to now force teams to spend money. It's not going to make tanking as financially cheap as it is right now. Um, but then at the same time, what you know, a lot of reports are suggesting is that that's going to be tied to possibly a lower luxury tax threshold, which the players don't want. So I don't know that we're going to end up seeing a salary floor, but if it were to go into, you know, into effect in some way, shape or form, it would obviously force the Orioles to spend more. And I do think that what you'd see at least for the next year or so would be spending more money on mediocre players, or like Bob said, taking on more salary in trades to hopefully get a prospect back. And that would be, there are going to be measures put in place to prevent you know, teams like the Orioles doing this again, or teams rebuilding in this dramatic fashion. I think I feel pretty certain in that. But at the same time, like you know, John Milley mentioned that last week, you know, that he's surprised that we haven't seen the Orioles in terms of making a trade, trading for that high, you know, salary guy and, and buying basically buying a prospect in this type of deal. You know, honestly, like that would make the Orioles, you know, slightly more competitive. Like, yeah, you can still rebuild, but you know, if you're trading, you know. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be the situation anymore, but like the Padres, I always mention the Padres. Easy for me to, to understand what's going on over there. But taking on a guy like Will Myers and his contract, that's going to make the Orioles a lot better uh, while you get one of their uh, pretty good prospect from San Diego. So I think that would help the situation. But again, I feel like it's just kind of like moving pieces around and not actually like helping anything in the long run. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that alone is going to change the landscape when it comes to competitiveness. It's going to take a lot more than that to really figure that out. But hopefully the Orioles, if they do put an end to tanking, will be the last successful version of that. So we'll uh, talk now about awards. Cedric Mullins won the Silver Slugger Award this year. Congratulations to him. After the first 30-30 season in franchise history and the only 30-30 season in the major leagues in 2021, Mullins, you know, the three of us had some hopes that there would be a little bit of a breakout there, a little bit more offense, but we did not see 30 homers and a silver slugger award coming. And although center field had a lot of good contenders, and I think in the end the Gold Glove Award went to the right choice in Michael A. Taylor, you can, you know, rave about Mullins' defense all night in addition to his offense. So silver slugger doesn't tell the full story of how good Cedric Mullins was last year, but it is a really nice recognition to see Mullins becomes the first Oriole since Mark Trumbo in 2016 to receive a silver slugger award. So I'll question. start with Bob. This is obviously great news. Just uh, what's your reaction to it? Yeah, it's great to see. Congrats to Cedric for just continued recognition for an awesome season. And yeah, like you said, he didn't make the gold glove finalist, but he was up there and outs above averages. I think he was fourth best in the outfield as far as chasing balls down, uh, according to baseball savant. So to go along with that, his 30-30 season, he's one of the best-hitting outfielders in baseball last year, and there's no doubt about that. I don't have anything new to say that hasn't already been said about Mullins, and, but I think this is just another example of like what this organization is capable of in terms of development. You know, It's it's cool to see Zach Watson come out of nowhere with this power, a non-top-30 prospect. It's great to see Kyle Stowers put himself into the conversation. Is, is he going to be a starting outfielder on this roster next year? Uh, but, you know, 
the big question is, can these guys do it at the major league level? Obviously, and that's a fair question about any prospect. Uh, but the Orioles were able to take Cedric Mullins and we saw him like he couldn't hit major league pitching two years ago. He couldn't even hit triple A pitching. That was probably because of his experience in the major leagues. But it's so bad. He gets moved back to double A again. That story's been well documented. But this guy who couldn't touch upper level pitching. And now he was in the MVP conversation this year, which is just fantastic. I mean, so like, can this can this organization develop guys at the major league level? I think Cedric Mullins is your example A. And Ryan Mountcastle, someone we're going to talk about in a minute, is example B. Two homegrown prospects turned major league contributors who I think are both are on track, at least, to be successful major league starters for a long, long time this organization. Yeah, they basically rebuilt Mullins from the ground up. And, yeah, you, you knew he could steal 30 bases, but I don't think anyone knew he could hit 30 home runs, even with the juice ball. So just just a great story altogether. Well, and I think that, you know, part of this goes back to him abandoning switch hitting. I think that was a big development for him. And although I had hopes that he was going to be a little bit better hitter because of that, because going back to the minor leagues, his platoon splits had always been really glaring. They had always suggested he was a better hitter from the left side of the plate. Um, I just didn't necessarily think he was going to tap into this power the way that he did. Yeah. And he was not even like, I mean, he was a decent prospect, uh, you know, as far as Orioles prospects goes, but he wasn't like anywhere near a top 100 in baseball type prospect. And and he's turned into this. So what are they going to do with the Adley Rushmans of the world who are at the tip top of the prospect list? My only thing with you know Mullins and then you know, Mountcastle too, but with Mullins, like I, I don't have an opinion here really, but for you guys watched a lot more of him than I did. Are either of you afraid of like, a big regression next year or do we think Cedric Mullins is maybe not a silver slugger every couple of years but a solid major league regular for the next five plus years I think there will probably be regression but I, I I'm not too scared of big regression I don't think he's going to go back to you know 2019 version of himself not worried about that at all I think he'll probably be like a 280 to 300 type hitter with 15 20 home runs most season 20 stolen bases and as long as the defense is still there I think that's plenty valuable. Just a uh, 750 to 800 OPS in center field with good defense. Uh, I'll take that any day of the week. Yeah, I don't see him having a 30-30 season again, but I don't think he's going to completely drop off either. So the power might come back a little bit, but I think he's got a lot of good years ahead of him, at least defensively in center field. And I think the bat, has, he's now shown at the plate that he can hold his own in the lineup, which was always one of the concerns with him. I think he's going to hit well enough to hold that job down for – the next several years, but fortunately with the outfield depth, the Orioles are building, uh, they can make that situation interesting in just a couple of years of Colton Cowser or some of these other guys work out. That's yeah, going to be a good point. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be fun for me to watch. If, if Mullins is that guy of your future and if Austin Hayes, I know there's more questions about Austin Hayes, but if you have two thirds of your outfield locked down and you have so many outfielders in the system, th- this is where the trades are going to happen. And that's going to be a lot of fun to watch unfold over the next couple of years but yeah i mean if a guy like Kowser can push mullins to a corner like a left field if, if his defense is good enough or something like that that just makes your team even better or make mullins or Kowser whoever expendable then you can trade them for a big piece uh, down the stretch one season we'll focus now on the oriole that did not get an award and in fact was not named a finalist for an award that some were expecting him to and that was ryan malcastle for american league rookie of the year the players had voted him uh, American League Rookie of the Year, but the official American League Rookie of the Year that the Baseball Writers Association votes on 
every year. Mountcastle did not finish in the top three and was not named a finalist for an award that went to Randy Rose Arena of the Rays. Um, so depending on how you were analyzing Mountcastle's season, I think this news either comes as a big surprise or not a big surprise at all because you could either take away the fact that he was not a good defender in the outfield, didn't draw a lot of walks, um, had a war that by the baseball reference version was below a full win, uh, and just say well, he's a guy that happened to hit a lot of home runs. Or you could say he led all rookies in home runs this year. How does a guy that hits that well, especially the way he hit over the last few months, not finish in the top three, especially in the year where there didn't seem to be a clear-cut favorite uh, coming up to the announcement of the award on Monday night. So, Nick, I'll start with you on this one. When Mountcastle was not named a finalist, were you at all surprised? I mean, like if wars are your thing and you like following this stuff, like that's that's great. Uh, but like I just I didn't have any energy to like care about if he was a finalist or not, to be totally honest. Like I don't pay really pay attention to these awards stuff. I mean, whether or not Mountcastle is a rookie of the year winner or even a finalist, I don't think that has no impact on his future as a regular in this lineup. I think, you know, the the writers that have a vote, how many of them actually even watched Ryan Mountcastle play this year? You know, other than any Orioles guys, I think we heard that there were two Orioles player or uh, writers who had votes. Uh, so, you know, how, does it really matter what the Oakland A's beat writer thinks about Ryan Mountcastle? Like, I don't really care, to be totally honest. Uh, so the players voted him rookie of the year. And I think his peers voting him as a player or rookie of the year means a whole lot more to him than uh, uh, than what some beat writers have to think. So, you know, not shocked completely because I guess, you know, the game is moving towards the, you know, the more, you know, war, everything is war based. You even see now this proposal of paying free agents based on their war value, which is absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, if you do look at the war, yeah, Ryan Mountcastle isn't that high on the list. So of course that's going to knock him down. So I'm not surprised, but it does surprise me considering like so many of these beat writers, like dusty old guys that like he leads the league in home runs that would count for something, but it obviously didn't, but this has no impact on his future. He's a great player. We know that. I think that's all that matters. Yeah. For me, you know, these awards are cool. It's nice to see them get recognition, but at the same time, just because he didn't get the award or even get in the top three finalists, it's not like it makes him a worse player because of that. So he's still going to be the same player that he was if he won the award. So that's good for the Orioles to have him. They're, he's just a sleeper now. He's a dark horse. People don't know about him. But uh, And it was also just a really deep. There was no standout obvious winner in the AL, but it was a pretty deep field. I think there were five or six guys that could justifiably be picked as the top three finalists the two raised guys Luis Garcia uh Adolis Garcia who seemed like it was between him and Mountcastle for a while there uh to get the award and neither of them were the finalists so just a weird year overall but doesn't really bother me either way but I understand Orioles fans they want they want the recognition from their own guys and and that's cool that they're fighting for him but for me it doesn't really bother me either way in a way, I was kind of happy to see that people were upset because it shows that the fans still care and they recognize that this is someone that is going to be you know, a big part of the Orioles' future, so they want him to get that recognition. But it doesn't really change my perception of Mountcastle as a player. I still feel like he's a guy that has the potential to be a middle-of-the-order bat in this lineup for several years. I think the biggest things we learned about him this year are, number one, that power is going to play to major league level and that his bat has the potential to get even better. And number two, that he's not an outfielder at the major league level. Um, but he looks like now he's maybe settling into first base a little bit, and it's going to turn out to be, you know, 
hopefully at least an above average defensive first baseman. But he really did, you know, show some strides this year at the bat. I do want to throw this out there, though, because regardless of what stats you looked at, whether you want to look at war or you want to look at the traditional metrics like batting average, you can come away with the same feeling, which is that a bad first month probably cost Ryan Mountcastle a lot of rookie of the year votes. Um, is that fair in this race or is that just kind of part of the game? And, you know, unfortunately his April was just so bad that it dragged the rest of his numbers down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, baseball is just a game of streaks and ups and downs and that's just the way it turned out. He was got off to a cold start, but he was red hot. I think he won player of the week at least one time. So you know, I don't think that really matters much at the end of the day, but maybe if uh, people were paying attention early and then just kind of said, forgot about the Orioles, then yeah, that might have affected it. I think the real uh, crime is Ramon Urias didn't uh, get top three. You know, he's much more war than uh, Ryan Mancastle. So where's the outrage? Yeah, I mean, that, that would, I think that does have a lot to play in it because you, if you're off to that slow start when everybody's paying attention and like, you know, everyone's fair game. Anyone can win this division, right? And then the Orioles get as bad as they are. And so no one, not even Orioles fans, really paying attention to the Orioles. So it's hard for, you know, writers to pay attention to Ryan Mountcastle's season. But I look at Ryan Mountcastle and say, like, he, he walks now. He walked a good amount. He showed an improvement in that area. And that was, other than the defense, it was always the walks. The guy doesn't walk. Well, he does that. Uh, like Zach said, the bat, the power's going to play at the major league level. He has found a home at first base, I think. And I thought watching him learn the position in Norfolk that he caught on pretty quickly and that I think he can be a pretty fine first baseman for years to come. And so I think he has a defensive home that he's going to improve on. He walks. He's got power. He, he's shown growth throughout the year. Uh, and so I think this is a big player development win for the Orioles. And we as fans know what we have in Ryan Mountcastle. He's, he's here. He's this first baseman of the future. Uh, so I think it's a win. It's a win for him. And I'm sure he, he probably, we don't know Ryan Mountcastle. He probably wants the hardware. Like I've got hardware sitting right next to me, big coach of the year plaques over here that if it was up to me, they'd be sitting on my mantle over my fireplace in the living room. So everybody knows they're walking to a house of greatness, but <laughs> um, high school track coach over here. But uh, like, but at the end of the day, like the guy hits major league pitching, he hits it well. And I think that's what's most important. And his peers know that he's pretty darn good. So. Yeah, maybe he gets a little bit less in arbitration because he didn't get a top three finalist. But, uh, yeah, it's not the end of the world. Nick, are you going to redesign your background and put these awards up there so that everybody can see them when we live stream the show on social media? I should. I've been wanting to redo this because I got lots of bobbleheads and cards and memorabilia and everything. But I'll make sure the trophies are uh, right here so everybody can can know. (laughs) Well, just to put uh, Mountcastle's full results in the context – he picked up two second place votes and four third place votes. The second place votes uh, came from Peter Smuck, former uh, Baltimore Sun writer who was there for a long time and is part of the Baltimore chapter. And Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic, who is part of the Boston chapter of the Baseball Writers Association. Uh, Joe Trezza, who writes for the Orioles over at MLB.com, was one of the writers to put Mountcastle third, as well as a writer in Kansas City. Um, a writer in San Francisco, and then Mark Tompkin, who covers a race for the Tampa Bay Times. So not everyone that voted for Mountcastle comes from the American League East City. So just thought that was worth throwing out there because I thought it was going to be, you know, skewed a little bit more towards the teams that saw Mountcastle regularly this year. But Mountcastle picking up uh, 
votes from writers that presumably cover the Royals and the A's. So so it was not just an AL East trend. Yeah, that's good to see. I mean, Mountcastle is just this rare prospect that actually succeeded, and he's got a high floor and a pretty high ceiling. You know, defensively, he'll never be on the high end of the spectrum, but we know he can hit, and if he can start walking, it's, it's lights out for the American League East. I'm never reading Joe Trezza again. Third place, come on. No, I, I'm going to still read. I'm still reading you, Joe. But Willie Yan and all. <laughs> oh yeah, Willie Yan. Oh, don't get me started. Let's move on. <laughs> all right. So we got another listener question here, and this is from Vivek. Uh, he posted this on our Patreon chat. Given the free agent signing so far, is it telling um, of the price for quality starting pitching and what the absolute max contract for the Orioles? might offer for one for 2022. So we have seen some pitchers sign recently. Um, Andrew Haney going to the Dodgers was really the first big move of the offseason. That seemed like the type of pitcher the Orioles could pursue, but didn't. So I just want to get your guys' thoughts on this, which is really do the Orioles start getting in the starting pitching market and what might it look like in terms of years and contracts? They're not going to sign a Eduardo Rodriguez type of deal for five years and 80 million is, even though I think that's a pretty fair deal all around for Detroit and for him himself. But I think they're just going to wait it out and see who's left at the end of the day and who's willing to sign for as low as money as possible. As boring as that, that is. And uh, you know, not what Orioles fans want to hear. I just think that's the reality right now, but I think you're looking at like a Michael, Michael Pineda for like two years, 12 million, that type of deal at the most. And maybe a couple guys that one year four or five million. Yeah, I would love to have Michael Pineda for for that money. Um, and you have to wonder. I don't know. If, I don't think he's got a World Series yet. I don't know. He's an older guy, injuries, so he might be looking to go to a contender as well. But I think that's the biggest issue. Is you know, even if the Orioles do want to throw a few bones a pitcher's way and pay up just a little bit, you know, a two twelve, a two fifteen, or something for a guy like. Are they going to be able to convince those pitchers to come to this organization knowing that you know next year probably isn't going to be that great again? Um, even though you, maybe you can promise them, yeah, you're going to be the, the number two guy on this team behind a John Means. You might even be the number one on this roster. Who knows? Uh, but I, I don't think – I'm not anticipating any signings. I honestly wouldn't be shocked if it's just barely a step above a Matt Harvey deal next year. I know there was some talk, but I just don't see it shaping out in the Orioles' favor this this offseason, unfortunately. Well, at least they could say, you know, come here, pitch good for 15 starts, and we'll trade you two in a contender, and then you can get your World Series ring that way. Yeah, that would probably be the selling point on one-year deal is, you know, by the All-Star break or a little bit after, you're going to be pitching for a contender as long as you're healthy and making your starts every five days. I, I think that if the Orioles get into the pitching market, it's going to be late in the offseason, uh, kind of like Bob mentioned. If there is someone sitting there right before spring training starts is a good fit that could be had for, you know, a low cost one year major league contract. I would expect the Orioles to make a move then, but I feel like between now, you know, probably between now and when the current CBA expires, but then, you know, maybe even really more between now and the beginning of February, it's going to be pretty quiet as far as that's concerned. I feel like this is a speculation. I feel like if the Orioles make any sort of notable move, between now and then, as far as free agents go, it's going to be for a shortstop and not a pitcher. Or it'll be a trade and not a free agent signing. I, I could see Elias loves to make his November trades, so 
we could see that, but yeah, I don't think maybe a backup catcher, but still that's someone you can just grab at the end of the off season. So I just don't think we're in a position right now where, you know, we have to rush and sign someone to steal them away from anybody else. And you have so many pitchers as well. And I know like none of these guys performed well last year. And I know I don't want to watch a rotation where like Bruce Zimmerman is the number two either, but I think the Orioles are still high on a number of these guys like Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer. They're going to want to give them another opportunity. Michael Bauman hopefully starts the year in the rotation. Like I think you have a lot of guys that the Orioles are going to want to get eyes on again next year. Uh, and so they're going to let them have those rotation spots. And they're going to have to earn them, obviously, but they're going to get first crack at that rotation spot, I think. And that's why I think they're going to be more hesitant. If they do spend money, I do agree. It would be a shortstop. It may be a third baseman. Uh, it's going to be to bring in a, a good veteran backstop to pair with Adley uh, that you might have to pay a little bit for. That's where the money's going to go. I don't think it's going to go to pitching this year. That's going to wait until they're ready to start contending a, a little harder, I think. I got to get a Dean Kramer 2022 uh, flag planted in my yard. Sorry, you're, you're going to get on the comeback hype train now or? Yeah, I got to order a jersey, Dean Kramer jersey coming in the mail. Just don't buy it from wherever you bought UCL Diaz jersey from. I know. <laughs> they don't take returns, unfortunately. <laughs> so some good news, um, which we talked about a little bit last week when we had John Mioli on. He gave some insight about it, and that is that Heston Kerstad um, is working out down in Sarasota. The Orioles have been putting out a lot of content on social media, showing Kerstad taking batting practice. He also met with the media and I believe had his first interviews since he was initially drafted by the team uh, to talk about sort of the way that he's worked himself back from myocarditis. Um, and it's great to see. It's great to see him healthy. It's great to see him getting in baseball shape. And, you know, we all hope, you know, starting the year somewhere in 2022 healthy. Um, so this is all positive news after really all season. It seemed like you would hear seems to be taking some steps forward and then it would be, you know, they're shutting him down or that there's been a mild scare and then wouldn't hear anything for a while. Uh, but now he seems to be working his way back to being in a lineup somewhere every day. So I'll start with Bob on this news, which is, it's obviously great that Kerstad seems to be recovering and is getting healthy. If he is full go for 2022, what would your expectations be for him? I would expect him to start in Loe Delmarva, quickly move up as long as he's proved to be healthy and performing to Aberdeen. And then, you know, hopefully just like Jordan Westberg, get a month or so in, in Bowie to set himself up for 2023. Maybe he can, uh, start in Bowie or AAA and then maybe get a taste of the big leagues at the end of 2023. But that's, that's my best guess. But it's like, uh, like you said, I feel like this guy has been in the organization for almost 18 months now. And I just don't even know who he is until I saw his first interview, uh, like a week or two ago. So it's really cool to see, uh, glad he transferred his powers to Kyle Stowers, uh, in the meantime, and can't wait to see him out there. Yeah, I, I remember it was like a vacate, like our family pandemic vacation that we like sheltered in place on the beach somewhere and it was watching the draft. And that was Heston Kerstad. And that feels like forever ago. Um, like, I know, I think that would be the dream scenario there if that plays out. And I know Orioles fans are extremely anxious to see Kerstad on the field. I am as well. But like, I still, I 100% agree with this pick still, especially after you watch Jordan Westbrook and Kobe Mayo this season. Like, those guys are in the system because we went Kerstad with that first pick. Those guys are studs. Um, ideally, yeah, Kerstad starts in Delmarva and has a Jordan Westberg path. Uh, but I think, you know, 
I'm honestly not going to be worried at all if he has to spend a little bit more time in Delmarva and maybe he only ends the year in Aberdeen with a month or so in Aberdeen, but you know, he's, he's a high floor prospect. So you're, you're minimizing that risk there a bit. When you take a high floor prospect like Kerstad, we're not talking about an 18 year old kid, this raw prospect who's now missed two extremely critical years of his development. Kerstad just needs the at-bats. He needs the innings. You had John Mioli, who's mentioned, you know, his signing scout mentioned how quickly he can put on weight and get back into shape. So that may not be an issue. It's just going to be about getting at-bats, getting plate appearances, getting his timing down. He's got that experience, but, you know, I just think if Kerstad needs more time to develop in Delmarva, like, I'm okay with that because we've seen the rise of, you know, Kyle Stowers and Robert Newstrom. The organization is going to give Yusniel Diaz, whether we like it or not, one more opportunity. Uh, so, like, you have these guys to that are – going to get their shot first you have Colton Kowser there as well who's going to be a fast riser there's so much outfield depth in the system there's really no rush as there was when Chris I was drafted sure we didn't have this depth we didn't know Cal Stowers was going to be this Cal Stowers we we need a Kershaw in the major leagues I just think now there's so much depth in the upper levels of the minor leagues it's okay if Kershaw isn't rushed he's not needed next year so if it's late 2023 early 2024 as long as he's healthy and constantly moving in the right direction I think it's going to be okay yeah, I agree. I think that anything you can get out of him next year is good. And I'll, I'm fine if he has to spend a little bit more time in Delmarva, like Nick said. I thought that John Mioli brought up a really good point last week um, when he said that you don't, you don't need Kersad to be that guy that rises through the system quickly to be your everyday right fielder next year now because, you know, and Nick talked, touched on this too, Kyle Stowers had a big year. Robert Newstrom had a big year. And by the end of the week, might be on the 40-man roster. Uh, you can even throw guys like Zach Watson and Colton Kowser into that mix. So the pressure is off Kerstad a little bit. Um, you know, I'll also say, too, although myocarditis is not com- entirely unprecedented, Eduardo Rodriguez came back from it this year and pitched fairly well for the Red Sox. Um, this also isn't like, you know, he tore an ACL or he tore a labrum in his shoulder and we kind of know what the recovery time's going to look like. This is just a lot different. So, admittedly, I don't know if that's going to affect the way the Orioles use him next year. Does that mean he maybe DHs a little bit more at the beginning of the year? I don't know. But if he can get in Delmarva's lineup on opening day um, and just be out there playing every day, hopefully hitting a lot of long home runs, uh, I'll call that a win. And then, you know, whatever happens with his timetable happens. Yeah, and don't panic if he gets off to a slow start because he hasn't played in so long and it's his first professional season. And don't panic if he fades a little bit early at the end of the season and struggles just like uh, Robert Newsom kind of did. You know, it's a long season after such a long break with such a serious illness. So let's just focus on uh, May to August and we'll, we'll be happy. For his sake, I hope he comes out of the gates hot and has a good year. Cause it sounds like he was really bored <laughs> without baseball in his life. So for his sake, I hope he's fully healthy. And yeah, I was going to bring that point up too. I'm glad you did Bob that, that end of the season, he, he could very well hit a wall late in the year. So I think as long as he comes out of the gates, you know, okay. As Again, as long as there's progress being made, uh, I'm cool with it. Again, if he has to spend all year in Delmarva, as long as he's making progress and the Orioles feel like he's still making progress, I'm fine with that as well. There's absolutely no rush with Kerstad. We'll see how all this, all this plays out. That health is first and foremost. And we know he's a full go, but let's see when he gets into like full game action six days a week, what's that going to do to his body? We don't know. Like you said, it worked for Eduardo Rodriguez. He was fine, but this is going to attack everybody differently. We don't know how his body's going to react as well. So 
health first. And I think we'll see Kerstad up in the upper levels of the minor leagues and in the major leagues before too much longer. And I'm fine with him get, uh, getting a little bit of an extended look at Aberdeen. I can go watch him a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, hey, maybe he will make um, Ripken Stadium look small for once. Yeah, he'll be the one that can uh, hit the home runs there. So we did want to also touch on some transaction news. So we didn't have a lot of time to discuss last week, which is that the Orioles claimed right-handed pitcher Brian Baker off waivers from the Blue Jays. He is on the 40-man roster um, after that claim. Quick profile on Baker, six foot six, 245-pound right-hander who throws hard, got in the major leagues last year and pitched in just one inning of relief for the Blue Jays, spending most of the year at AAA Buffalo where he put up pretty good numbers. Uh, this is someone who has also spent time in the Colorado Rockies system um, and had shown some promise there was increasing velocity leading up to the 2020 season. I'll just start with Bob on this. Um, Baker seems to fit a type that Michael Elias has, which is big, hard-throwing right-hander that can give you an inning or two at a time out of the bullpen. Where do you think he fits into this team next year? I think he and, him and Felix Bautista, the Bash brothers, like the Mighty Ducks. I mean, these guys are giants on the mound throwing high 90s and only give up like a hit every other inning or even less so yeah I think it it is a type that Elias seems like hard throwing you know big durable guy Tyler Wells fits the same kind of mold uh, I think he's just an option for the bullpen we'll see if he even makes it through the offseason on the 40-man roster I mean this is going to be a, a roster turn for the foreseeable future but if he does he's certainly a guy that I think can help you in the bullpen it seemed like you know as far as the Blue Jays go, it wasn't like he was a guy they didn't like. I think they just, you know, had a little bit of roster crunch a la the Rays do a lot of times. And and I'm excited to see him pitch. He's a big guy with a big arm. So what's what's not to like there? I really like this pickup. I mean, his AAA numbers were fantastic with Toronto. He's the fastball slider guy. He is older. He's I think he's getting ready to turn 27 like this month or next month. But he has options remaining. So, you know, I'm sure the Orioles found that attractive and it will be interesting to see, like Bob said, there's no guarantee that he sticks around. Uh, I think this is a guy that if you like him. Uh, you like the base there. You think he can contribute at the major league level. Go ahead and claim him now, bring him into the organization, protect him for right now. And if you find someone better then you find someone better, but you know, I think you look at his numbers, like he, the walks have always been an issue. If you look at his past performance, but he improved on that this year by like five, six percentage points. Uh, strikeout rate was still close to like 30% what he's been putting up in the upper levels of the minor leagues. And it's like a very, you know, DL hall statistical profile. Like, yeah, the walks were up, but that whip was 0.85. Like that's a really good whip for a guy who walks so many guys, uh, because he doesn't allow the base hits, a lot of strikeouts. So, and it also seems like he can be a pretty animated guy on the mound, which I love. I love those guys that aren't afraid to show some attitude, uh, some, uh, you know, on the mound, but, I think I saw where he touched up this a couple of years ago. He was touching like 101 in games and now he's sitting around 93 to 95 hitting 98 this season, but big guy, sturdy guy. And he, if he can pound the strike zone and limit those walks, he could be an option for the Orioles. Yeah. I think I saw what he gave up 15 hits over like 31 innings or something like that. That's crazy. Yeah. He's another option. And I think he's a good one because you know, of the way that his stuff plays and how well he pitched triple a last year. And, you know, I don't think we're finished as far as turnover for the bullpen goes. Um, I think we're going to see some other moves made there between now and when pitchers and catchers report. So Baker gives you another option. And you know that he's a guy that if nothing else can throw hard. And, you know, with a waiver claim, there's really not significant downside. 
yeah, if he doesn't work out, then you just try to outright him. And, you know, Nick brought up a great point with him having options still. That gives you a lot more flexibility because let's say he does, you know, make the opening day roster. You realize six weeks into the season, he's not ready and that there's pitchers in Norfolk who are better equipped to pitch in the major leagues right now than Baker. You can send him down and not have to worry about him being out of options. So that there, that roster flexibility, I think, is really key. Yeah, and we saw how many times we brought guys up and down in the bullpen last year. They just need any arm they can to, to finish the season. So, yeah, definitely doesn't hurt to be able to have that flexibility. Did, did we talk about Hunter Harvey last week? I don't think we did. No, because, I mean, I think John mentioned it, but we didn't, yeah, we didn't officially mark the end of the Hunter Harvey era. Because... I don't know, you guys can go for if we want to talk about Hunter Harvey like, and give y'all's thoughts. But I, I just I was thinking when I thought of like Baker and I was listening to again, shout out to the warehouse. I was listening to those guys early this morning, their episode from late last week. And, you know, fan favorite uh, guest of On the Verge. If you list, look at our download numbers, uh, whenever Stephen Loftus is on, you guys flock to our episodes. Um, but, you know, he kind of mentioned that, you know, you, if you take peak Hunter Harvey, you can find what, in his opinion, who he thinks Pete Connor Harvey is, you can find, you know, five or six guys on the cheap, cheap and free agency to replace that kind of production. And I got the sense like Baker is one of those guys who I think can give you the same type of production as long as he can limit those walks that Hunter Harvey is going to give you. That's if Hunter Harvey were to stay healthy in 2022 when he had almost a decade in this organization and he could not stay healthy. So I would not put my money. Like, I don't think this is another Yaz or Kevin Gaussman situation in San Francisco. Although I know every Orioles fan is going to, is just waiting for that to happen. God <laughs> knows what would happen if Hunter Harvey is healthy next year and is like one of the top relief pitchers in the national league. But I don't think this is that same scenario. And Baker is a guy who can come in and, and kind of help replace what you're going to get out of there. But I don't know what you guys thought about the Harvey situation. I mean, they tried to sneak him through. It almost worked. He got to the San Francisco Giants, the very last team that could have claimed him. And I think it was a, a move worth trying because if you can get him through, then he's in AAA and you can kind of not care as much about his health, you know, or at least, you know, it's not as much pressure on him to stay healthy. But yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't think we're losing that much though. I mean, even when he's healthy, he's a guy, yeah, he throws hard. I like his arm. I like his story. If he could come back, that would be great. But he's got a straight fastball and a, and a decent slider. I mean, it's not like, yeah, he could be a decent bullpen reliever, but like you said, it's definitely guys you can pick up to easily replace that kind of production, especially since I think he's never pitched more than 15 innings in a major league season. So. Yeah. That type of arm is, you know, easy to replace out of the bullpen. And I think especially in a year where the Orioles probably have four or five right-handers that are up for the rule five draft that could probably give you a similar pitch mix. Not to say that they're guaranteed to be successful, but the profile just isn't that far off from what peak Hunter Harvey was. Now you go back to peak Hunter Harvey, which was really, I guess the end of the 2019 season, that was something to get excited about. It looks like we were maybe watching the next closure for the Orioles, but his problem just has been throughout his career that he can't stay healthy. And that's, you know, if, it, if there's an organization that's going to unlock Hunter Harvey, it is going to be the Giants. Uh, I'll just throw that out there now. But if he's not healthy, it, it's not going to be a big loss to the Orioles at the end of the day. And I think even if we see some peak, some version of peak Hunter Harvey again, 
it's not going to be the type of pitcher that is impossible to replace. Um, you know, I think that it's just as likely that Dylan Tate could figure it out this year and be a better version of Dylan Tate um, than it is that Hunter Harvey could put together a healthy full season for the Giants. Yeah, I agree. And the Rays passed on him, and they work miracles with pitchers. They even took Sean Armstrong off our hands. So, yeah, if they pass on him, then I don't think we have much to worry about. But if, like you said, if anyone's going to get something out of him, probably be the Giants. But So the Mad Behemoth uh, has a question for us here uh, from YouTube. What are the odds Harvey is more productive than, say, Blaine Knight? Now, Knight is Wolf 5 eligible this offseason. He's one of those guys that seems to be on the bubble of being protected with a 40-man roster spot. So interesting question because they kind of are similar pitchers. Yeah, they do kind of have, you know, similar profiles, especially if, you know, if, if Knight's working short stints, you might be able to get that fastball up even a little bit higher. He's got that nice slider. So, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, you could easily see Blaine Knight putting up similar numbers, which what Harvey had like a mid four ERA in his time that he was in the major league. So I could see Knight being able to do that. And I definitely think he'll be more likely to stay healthy over that stretch of time. But honestly, I'd rather, you know, protect the Nick Vespi, Felix Bautista and roll with them, see what they can give us. Yeah, that's it's interesting. And it's hard because Blaine Knight did really kind of fall apart there in AAA. And we talked about maybe theories as to why that might've happened, but yeah, he, Knight doesn't have the velo, but that slider is a, a, an impressive slider that a lot of people really love. So maybe, uh, and he doesn't have the injury history. Ofelke Peralta even doesn't have the injury history. And, you know, maybe if you say like, let's just focus and make you a two pitch pitcher, will that make, you know, his pitches a little bit better? I don't know. Uh, could he be more productive than Hunter Harvey? I mean, Peralta's got the velo. He could throw it 98, 99, even hundred miles an hour in a one inning stint. Um, and yeah, Vespi, Vespi is a fastball slider guy. And Jonathan Mayo was all over it in the Fall Stars game broadcast. He said, look, this is a lefty. And even, you know, maybe he profiles best just going up against lefties as that lefty-lefty matchup guy, which, you know, with the three-out rule kind of, you know, negates that a little bit. But that's a guy who can probably stick in the major leagues. And that slider is good enough. Uh, so um, that's the pitch that he's going to rely on. And so, yeah, I think I'd rather roll the dice on a Nick Vespi or even a Blaine Knight. Uh, instead of rolling with Hunter Harvey, because those other guys don't have the injury concerns. Again, almost like a decade Harvey was in this system. And to be fair, like every single year, he was a top 30 prospect for a reason. So like, I get why people would be you know upset or frustrated as to why a team like the Orioles are risking losing Hunter Harvey by trying to sneak him through waivers. But at the same time, like 10 years, come, come on, man. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy that was putting icy hot on his arm before he warmed up in the bullpen every single time. So, yeah, I mean, even if he is able to stay healthy, you know, that's a lot of damage that's been done there. I don't know how much is is reversible. So, the Wolf 5 uh, talk that we've had here a lot lately is going to kind of come to a head at the end of the week as the Orioles will have to decide which players they are going to protect from the draft. That deadline is Friday. I have a new piece up over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com that breaks down the cases of actually over a dozen players who are Rule 5 eligible this offseason. That's not the entire list of Rule 5 eligible players, but it's the ones who seem to be, um, you know, at least worthy of that discussion of a 40-man roster spot protection, even though the actual number of players that's going to be protected is probably going to end up being closer to five or six. Um, That will be coming up on Friday, and we are planning to have a show in response to that. Um, that will either drop on Friday night or a normal time on Monday. Uh, we'll have more details leading up to that. 
Uh, but look for some reaction from us there. And I did want to go to Nick because Nick didn't get a full chance on our Wolf 5 episode a couple of weeks ago to really weigh in with his thoughts. So, Nick, I'm going to give you the floor here for a minute. Anything you want to impart on this about the Rule 5 draft and any thoughts on Kevin Smith or some of the guys <laughs> on the bubble? Uh, hang on, my Kevin Smith thoughts. Join the Patreon. That episode's coming out soon, the Kevin Smith recap. Um, now, I was actually going to ask you guys if your opinions had changed since that episode was recorded based on the roster moves and some AFL experiences, but... I think Deal Hall, Bradish locks, Taren Vavra, I think is a lock. I am going to say Kevin Smith is protected. And for pretty much the point that you laid out in your article at BaltimoreSportsLife.com, they traded a major league piece for him. He was so dominant in double A. The new baseball, you know, all the adjustments to triple A, maybe, maybe, you know, they, they fired the pitching coach there. Maybe you bring Justin Ramsey up to triple A and you start Kevin Smith there and maybe they can work on something with him. So they're not going to cut bait quite yet with him. Uh, for me, the interesting thing is going to be Robert Newstrom, uh, and I think Nick Vespi, uh, and I want to say Felix Batista too. I want to protect all of these guys. Darn it. Um, Batista is a tough one because we, when you watch him, yeah, the walks were such an issue, a big issue for so long, but he throws it so hard and he strikes out so many guys. And just like Baker, we were talking about, he doesn't allow many base hits, uh, worked well with Adley Rutschman as well. I think they end up protecting Newstrom, uh, I, that bat, when you watch those home runs, watching that home run at Dunkin' Donuts Park again, that 460-something-foot home run, that's impressive. I think they protect him, and I think they should probably protect Nick Vespi too. Jonathan Mayo scared me, and yeah, I, I, really, I really like him. I agree. I, I would add Nick Vespi to my list if I was redoing it now. So that would make it six with Bautista, Newstrom, Vavra, Hall, and – Bradish. So, yeah, and Kevin Smith, I kind of hope they protect him because I think that's like a vote of confidence from the organization, and I think that means maybe they are confident that he can bounce back next year. But I, at the end of the day, I don't think – if they could risk Zach Pop getting taken, I think they can risk Kevin Smith getting taken. I would say maybe not protecting Robert Newstrom but going with Batista and Vespi instead. If you think – Newstrom's a tough one, though, because like, do you think a team would really take an outfielder in this situation. I guess that's that's a good question. I feel like they'd be much more likely to take a guy like Felix Batista and try to stash him away, but mm-hmm. are you going to keep that try to keep that bat in the lineup? I don't know. I'd probably take the gamble there and protect Batista over Newstrom, but if the, we lost Robert Newstrom, he's gone forever like I'm crying. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> I need them to protect him just cuz I need to see him hit the warehouse in an Orioles uniform. But uh yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, if you're playing the game, if you're trying to strategy it out, you know, that's that could be an interesting move there. What kind of adds a, another wrinkle to me for the newsroom discussion is the likelihood of a DH in the National League because that, that makes it easier to stick Newstrom on a roster and at least give him, say, half a season to see if he can figure it out. It, the reason that I keep going back to the fact that I think Newstrom will be protected is that how much longer of a lease does DJ Stewart really have? especially if you believe that Anthony Santander is going to get moved before the season um, ends. So it, it's possible that, you know, you bring Newstrom, you add Newstrom to the 40-man, knowing that if by Memorial Day, DJ Stewart has not put it together, um, and that Anthony Santander is going to be traded within the next two months, 
that there's your option to fill in that fourth, fifth outfielder, left-handed bat off the bench role and give you another guy to work with when Kyle Stowers gets there. So that that's kind of what I go back to for Newstrom. Um, you know, because I honestly wouldn't mind seeing them make move for room for Patrick Dorian. But I think that Dorian's going to get iced out because of the number of corner infielders that are on the 40-man. Newstrom's in a similar spot that's kind of tough. But I, I feel like at the end of the day, they're going to find room for him. Vespi was a guy that, I'll be honest with you, when I started working on this piece at Baltimore Sports and Life, I wasn't planning to give him a lot of space just because it seemed like there were a lot of relievers that were in that bucket. But then by the time, you know, in the days leading up to when this was published, it's like, all right, Vespi's got, out of those fall league guys, Vespi's the one that warrants the most discussing because fastball slider out of the bullpen, John Mayo hyped him up on the broadcast the other night, like Nick mentioned. That makes it, I think, more likely that someone would take a look at him out of the Rule 5 draft. I mean, he is having the standout year in Arizona among Orioles prospects that are over there. And like, like they mentioned on the broadcast, all those other teams are watching uh, every night. They've got scouts down there. They see how well he's pitching. And, I mean, at the Fall Stars game, he walked the guy, but he didn't allow a hit, didn't allow a run, and he ended it with a strikeout of Juan Yepes, who has been, like, the darling of the Arizona Fall League. So, you know, that raised some eyebrows. Guys are watching that. Teams are watching that. And so I think if the Orioles – that will tell us everything we need to know. If Vespi's protected, then that's a name to watch in 2022. The Orioles are clearly high on him, and they think he'd be a contributor at the major leagues next year. If they don't protect him, then obviously they are not as impressed as we may be. But um, no Adam Hall. Adam Hall's not getting protected. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Joe, Joe Trezza says yes. <laughs> yeah, I, Vespi's dominating the AFL. I think he's got an ERA around two. So it's definitely he's made an interesting case for himself. And quick note on DJ Stewart. I don't think he has a leash. I think they're just holding him by the collar and then ready to let him go at any time. Yeah, that's entirely possible. So uh, we will be back um, either late this week or early next week with a new episode reacting to the players that are protected uh, from the Rule 5 draft. One thing to note is that our next show will not be live because we have to plan ahead for Thanksgiving and our holiday travels as we know, as we're sure many of you are as well. But we will have a show next week uh, or late this week reacting to the players that are protected from the Bull 5 draft and given 40-man roster spots. In the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest Orioles, Ravens, Terps, and sports coverage. Be sure to join the message board and hop on the discussion there. Before we wrap up for the week, Bob, Nick, any final thoughts? Congratulations again to Ryan Fuller. It was great news. I was hyped up when I saw that announcement. So love to see it. And hopefully we can do another interview with him uh, from Camden Yards next season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, pay attention. We'll see who the, what the Orioles think about all these guys that are Rule 5 eligible. We finally get some action, even if we get a, a month or two of quietness in the offseason. It's about to heat up for Baltimore. Waiver wire pickups and Rule 5 draft. Yes. It's the stuff we love. Christmas season. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to tonight's episode, and we'll be back with a new episode either later this week or early next week. Uh, Until now, this has been Zach Spedden, and for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, thank you for listening to On the Birds.